Welcome to Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Yanina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier. So stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Hello, wine friends, and welcome back to part two with Amelia Singer. If you didn't catch last week's, we were talking about Austrian grape varieties. But today, as Amelia has had so many different wine experiences over her personal journey, we're going to talk a little bit more about that, what she's learned, her opinions on the goings on in our wine world. Oh, and of course, a little bit of wine advice at the end. Now, she does touch on a very interesting collaboration with Contrary Toro, who are the big guys in in Chile. And that has led me to start this podcast just telling you a little bit more about the wine region Limari. Now, the reason I want to talk about Limari is because in a moment when I actually go across to the episode, Amelia is going to be talking about the Amelia wines, which have been going since 1993. And these are super premium Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. So Limari as a region, it started with Chardonnay. This is the star grape variety of Limari. It used to be really all about Pisco production, a bit of tropical fruit. So this is a pretty new-ish wine region in Chile. This is north of Santiago. So you need to go about 200, 250 miles north. We are starting to get very desert-like in the conditions. Very, very little rain, 80 to 120 millimeters of rain. So it really relies on drip irrigation. It relies on the rivers that run through. And this region, Limari, is coastal. So you get all of the cooling breezes from the Pacific Ocean. You have the Kamenchaga fog coming in and cooling everything down. But what makes this region so special is that, well, actually around Chile in general, granitic soils are the norm. But here, there is a hell of a lot of limestone. So actually many parts of Limari used to be under the ocean many, many years ago. So with the cool climate, did very, very little rain, super dry. And with these limestone soils, you can make wine that tends to be a lot more mineral that has this freshness, mouth-watering acidity, amazing for cool climate reds as well. And of course, because it's not raining, the same as other perhaps cool climate regions in Chile, they're able to grow Merlot and Cabernet Franc. But Syrah has done a really, really good job there, as of course has the Pinot Noir. So you'll hear Amelia talking about Amelia's wines. She might get you excited. In fact, the Chardonnay a few years ago was the best Chilean Chardonnay of the year, and that was by Decanter. So these are very, very well-respected wines. But you know, I love my Chilean wines. You get exceptional value, whatever price point. So I don't know, maybe pour yourself a glass of Chilean this episode and enjoy. So now I want you to tell me about your project with Contrary Toro. Tell me what is going on with you 
and this Chilean winery. Well, I've been in the wine industry for 15 years. I've had Amelia's Wine as a business for the last eight years, but I've spent quite a lot of the few years in the States and also got trapped there during the pandemic. That's a whole nother story. <laughs> yeah. And during that time, it really made me think about what's actually important to me. I love wine, but what are the things I really love about wine? And for me, I've always loved the wider conversations around wine. So I love the podcast format. I love talking about wine and culture. I always used to do lots of wine and music tastings, literature, art tastings with wine. And when I came back to England during the pandemic, I was like, no, I'm going to stay in the UK. I'll work in the US, but I want to live in the UK. I was like, I just kind of want to do a glow up for my brand just to show people that I'm like really leaning in to what I believe in and what I stand for and the kind of activities and collaborations I want to do in the future. So over the summer, there was this kind of relaunch of the website, my new newsletter, which is kind of like much more art decoy design. And, and there was some inspiration from LA where I was living before from like Sunset Tower Hotel and Bette Davis and that old Hollywood glamour, which I love. But really why I was doing this glow up is to be focused on the fact that I really want to position myself as a wine culturalist. And what I mean by that is I love wine, but again, it's how wine brings people together from different cultures and you can have diverse conversations. And yeah, it's meant to be a life enhancer. So that's why, like when we were talking about Austrian wine in, in the previous podcast, like I will bring in my family, I will bring in dishes, I will bring in like what else you can do in Vienna when you're going to a wine fair. Because I think that's all part of really creating those memories and those associations, which are so important when it comes to wine. But going to the collab with Conchi Toro, they heard about me doing this like kind of glow up and I'm going to be launching a podcast later on in the year called Ameliorate Through Wine, where, <laughs> which is, we can talk about that later. But they were like, oh, well, we've just launched our latest vintage of the Amelia Chardonnay and Pinot Noir in the UK. Do you want to join up? And actually, I know, obviously, it's called Amelia, but that's not the only reason why I agreed. <laughs> I actually loved the Amelia Chardonnay. My dad has loved it since about 2005. We had it at my 21st birthday party, actually, the Chardonnay, because the Pinot Noir was only created recently. And then when I went to work in a winery in Chile, I lived in Pirque. I worked at Aras de Pirque. But down the road was the Country Toro Winery. And so I would in the evenings go and I'd always get like a glass of Amelia Chardonnay. So I have this like special connection with it. And then when they moved the vineyard, like they'd start making the wine up in Limery and it's, it's now like they're really focused on a cool climate and like, yeah, it's, it's kind of a bit crazy now, Casablanca and stuff in, in Chile due to climate change. I was really intrigued because I'd never tried their Pinot Noir before. And it is a slightly, I would say, more restrained like Chardonnay I would say now for me but I really loved it so when I heard that Marcelo Papa the winemaker was in town I was like hey why don't we get together so I did a collaboration he came over to mine we did an Instagram live in my home and there's like a special discount on the Amelia wine case now which you can get online at my Instagram and yeah you can also get it at Harrods and I think also the wine society too stock it too they're big okay. fans as well so it is genuinely a good wine I didn't just choose it because Amelia but that collaboration just really cemented for me like what wine should be about. Like I had such happy memories of it. And my dad actually joined us on the Instagram live and he brought in like a bottle from like 2005 of Amelia Chardonnay and like Marcelo Papa hadn't even tried that all the vintage of Amelia. So that was really cool. That's showing off now, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear me. Oh no, that's absolutely beautiful. Well, anybody who knows me or has been following the podcast for a long time knows that I have one, a very beautiful affiliation with 
Chile from working for a Chilean winery. And actually interesting that when you were in Purque, a lot of people go like, what the hell is Purque? And that's like one of the most amazing regions in Chile for your Bordeaux blends and your Cabernet Sauvignon. And it's not far away from Santiago, the capital. Um, Santiago. So I'd go down and see my mates on the weekend. Yeah. And it's mountainous. And you can get incredible views and you can go hiking around there. And the Maipo River runs through many of the vineyards. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. Well, all of Chile is a beautiful place of the world. It's long and skinny and within within almost an hour of anywhere, you can reach a beach or a mountain. It's insane. Anyway, we <laughs> go to Chile. Oh, yeah. but anyway, I love that. I love how where you lived has turned into a really cute collaboration. So, okay, you've got a million wine stories, and I want to make this episode about some of your wine experiences so that people can just kind of have a bit of an idea of what it's like to work in the wine industry. And one of the cool stories that I know is that you were chairing for Oz Clark. Many people know who Oz Clark is just because he's been on the telly a lot. And you were chairing for him and Jancis Robinson in the Intelligence Squared Wine Debate. So this was an old world versus new world debate, right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And it, yeah. So what happened? What and was again, this totally was up my street. So it was, so people paid and they got two glasses of wine. Um, it was sponsored by Waitrose. So it was an old world wine. I think it was like a Spanish Rioja. And then I'm trying to remember the new world wine. But Jancy stood for the old world. Oz stood for the new world. Oh, good for him. Yes. And Jancy was like, no, but it's all about traditions. And you can't just rip up vineyards and transplant these grapes. You know, like, what about the history and the heritage? And she was very much playing up on the romanticism. And Oz Clark was like, well, actually, you know, we kind of found out at the judgment of Paris over 40 years ago that actually America beat France and quite a few wines and actually is it really actually quite arbitrary to have these kind of boxes old world new world is like how would one describe Georgia and then he was this is in 2019 but he was already championing English wine back then he's like where does England fit in to all of that and like that was like a huge argument for him and actually at the end of the debate we then allow the audience to vote and voted for new world (gasps) I love this because, you know, my experience is actually starting as a sommelier that worked for a New York steakhouse and the wine list was very American. And so you'd be happy. And so I went very quickly from drinking Blossom Hill White Zinfandel to Harlem Estate in a very short period of time. And the appreciation of really incredible, top, big, bold, juicy, sweeter fruited red wine was something that gripped me. And I have to say, actually, that the value that you can often find in the new world, as for me, Chile and South Africa, I really... South Africa, yeah. They are in general... Yeah, my, my go-tos. So my palate, I, of course, I mean, I love all wines of the world and I will go everywhere and anywhere. But the New World, very often regions, they are, there's a, there's a juiciness, there's a fruitiness. But this whole debate, how many times are there blind tastings between established, historic, romantic wine region of Europe with a region of the New World? And, well, sorry, this is going to be a segue into, like, I know you wanted to talk about the wine show. And I no, again, tell me. this might be TMI, but in the second series, 
Like I filmed at Tassinger actually on my birthday. Oh, not a bad choice. Yeah. With Emmanuel Tassinger, who used to be the CEO, now his daughter Vitaly has taken over. And it was, again, 2019, 24th of July, and it was about 44 degrees Celsius. And I remember when we were filming, we were just like melting away. And I actually, oh gosh, I just lost my earring there. It's like, I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Hands. This is why I can never be a sommelier. I'm so clumsy. For everyone listening, Amelia, because you can't see her, she's just getting very passionate. She's getting very into this. No, we love it. Continue. Throw yourself on the floor. Throw your earrings anywhere. We don't care. We're loving the story. Keep going. <laughs> and I like turned to Emmanuel and I was like, is this normal? Because he's like, he was in his late 60s then. And he's like, in all of my however many years of living here, it's never been this hot in Champagne. And obviously Tattinger were one of the first publicly known wineries in Champagne to like be investing in land in England. And then it was interesting because like a week later, Joe Fasherini, my co-presenter and I, we had to do a blind tasting between Champagne and English sparkling. Ah, And like, it's not saying that one is better than the other, but it was so obvious due to the acidity levels and the structure, what was from Champagne and what was from England. And we got it all right. Like it was easy. Like it was like a no brainer. Okay. I sometimes like the warmer, riper styles or whatever. And I sometimes think English sparkling can sometimes get the dressage a bit like, they can sometimes be a bit too astringent with it. I mean, the British palate does tend to like tartar characteristics in their wine anyway. But all I'm saying is it was very noticeable more from the acidity point of view as opposed to, yeah, the quality level. And I think that that's the whole point, that when you learn about blind tasting or, sorry, not even blind tasting, when you learn about how to taste, we are trying to learn, in theory, what does the terroir do so that we can, you know, whether it's a certain soil type, whether it's a certain climate, it's going to affect the same grape in different areas so that, in theory, if you're that big a taster, you can identify. But... I have to say that now more than ever, what with global warming and with flying winemakers and sharing information, when you do do blind tastings, it depends on what it is that is harder than ever to identify whether, you know, there are mega tasters that don't know where certain wines are coming from. New World sometimes does taste a little bit more, as we think, earthier, more acidic, lighter. And Europe sometimes is fruitier and juicier than you expect. So I think there are big surprises. It's it's a complicated subject, right? Yeah. So no, that was like very fascinating for me. So that just like made me think going back to the Intelligence Square debate, like how does one position countries like England or Georgia or I mean Oz was trying to create this whole new category it's like it's like the new new world <laughs> like you know with climate change I met someone last week who's from Denmark and he told me that due to climate change they now have um 10 wineries in Denmark wow okay yes <laughs> I mean I am aware that there are some wineries even in Sweden there are, but I mean, none of them are commercial right now. They are planting hybrids. No, I'm saying it's got a long way to go, but it's just like crazy that they're it even, is. yeah. Well, you know, and here we are discussing England. And I know that there were master of wines that didn't really need to even study Argentina and, and Chile. And you've just been to Romania and you're like, wait, hang on a minute. I need to start learning about Croatia because my Croatian wine knowledge is almost zilch. So everyone, there'll be a Croatian wine podcast at some point where I will study hard to teach you because I don't know anything about it. You know, it's, constantly growing right the the industry is getting bigger and bigger and i guess with global warming 
it's um playing a little bit of havoc isn't it right yes. everyone, everyone has to be vigilant everyone yeah so okay my question to you is though what is your personal interpretation after listening to Oz Clark and Jancis Robinson and after having some blind tasting as an example with English wine versus champagne is the conclusion I don't know it all merges I think so and actually I think we've just got a lot to learn from each other like I'm all about like you know it was just actually going back to Romania it was so interesting going to like somewhere like Cremela Rakash where technically they've had vineyards since 1477, but they've only really been producing like commercial wine since the 90s. They have an Australian winemaker, a Basque winemaker. They've got local workers working in the winery. And I'm like, isn't that such a beautiful thing? And then you go to Timisoara and there's, you know, kind of Croatian communities and German communities and Hungarian national theatre and synagogues. And I'm like, actually... I do kind of think these are arbitrary. You know, I think before the distinction was between certain hemispheres with the new world and also the fact of regulation, the fact that they could put the actual grapes on the label, I think made a huge, huge difference because it is true. People do find it scary when they see Rod Gipfler, for example, on <laughs> a wine label or whatever. You know, like, so I do think actually it's, it's changing the whole time. And actually these, these categories aren't actually that helpful they're not that fixed. No. And okay, we talk about categories that aren't that fixed. I need you to explain to me and everyone listening, what the hell does it mean when you told me that <laughs> you had to do an interpretation of Kanye West? We're now taking wine into music. You had to do an interpretation of Kanye West through Spanish wine. I don't understand how Kanye connects to Spanish wine. What does that mean? Oh my gosh, it gets a lot weirder than that. So, I mean, as I said before, I'm a wine culturalist. I used to do, in England, I would team up and do wine and opera evenings with Garsington Opera and pair it to Arias. Love and, that. Or like Colin Park Opera. I would work with publishing groups and pair wine to books at Faber or Anathaman. I'd work with City of London Symphonia. I've worked with art galleries, as well as, of course, like with like restaurants and things like that. But I do consider wine to be one of the arts. But then, of course, I was approached because I am half American. <laughs> and I was ambassador of the California Wine Institute. So I was flying back and forth between California before I moved out there in 2018. So this must have been 2017. I think I'd just done some filming for the wine show. And I had also just done some filming for the California Wine Institute. And I've been approached by this guy who was like main job was in marketing but he really wanted to make wine fun and he was trying to find people who could again like demystify you know wine and kind of come up with it he'd seen some of the stuff I'd done and he's like look I've got sponsorship from like wines of Spain and we've got access to this amazing contemporary art gallery in Laguna Beach in California he's like can you basically interpret Kanye West through Spanish wine in contemporary art in Laguna Beach. So then what I did was I had a contemporary artist, like we chose five songs. This was again before Kanye West was canceled. Can I just say, <laughs> I would not accept the job now. <laughs> just also like, just caveat, I don't want to be canceled. <laughs> I just feel you have to be so careful nowadays. 
And I actually didn't even listen to really much of Kanye West. But this is also what I love about why, like when I like can like research it. So I like kind of listen to his music. I studied him as a as a producer and a creator. And they had a contemporary artist. So like we chose five songs from various albums. She then, inspired by these songs, created amazing kind of canvases, which we hung on the walls of this contemporary art gallery. We left one wall free, which we would then we had a kind of projector screen, which would then shoot the film video, um, the, the music video. I would stand on a podium. We had like dancers, like for every song. It was insane. And for every single <laughs> wine, we'd play the track. I'd stand on the podium in the middle. I'd then talk about Kanye West is not just his music, but him as an artist and producer. Maybe like talk about like some of the kind of artistic interpretations or brush strokes or whatever. And then somehow compare that to the tannins of a Spanish Rioja. And throughout, we also had canapes made by a really well-known Spanish chef back in the States who'd been at Chef's Table. And what was so amazing about the event, like it was a premium event. I think tickets were $100 or something. But when I looked around the audience, there were people of all ages. Of course, being in America, it had to be over 21. But it was like 21 to 75 and all ethnicities. And then I went around afterwards and I was like, so, you know, would you normally go to a wine taste? And most of the young people would be like, no, but they were intrigued by the Kanye West. And then when you talk to some of the older demographic, they'd be like, well, I was just actually just kind of curious. Like, I love this chef or I love this contemporary art gallery. And this just seemed like a really interesting way. And like, that for me was a really beautiful example of how, even if you know a lot about wine, you can always see it in a new way. Even if you know nothing about wine, it's about really being able to put yourself in the shoes of other people. And I think that's what a lot of wine communicators and educators forget about. They let their own ego get in the way. And they don't realize like wine is about sharing and empowering people and fun. And so it's nothing to do with you. It's actually just about being able to put yourself in the shoes of everyone around you. And of course, that's going to change. Like, you know, when I do a corporate tasting for Goldman Sachs, or when I do a tasting at 67 Palmel, that'd be different. But I think what I can do, and I, I used to do a lot of acting and jazz singing, I think that idea of performance and being able to feed off the audience and, and just to really get a feel for what they want and how for them to get most out of the evening, I think that's probably like a superpower of mine. It's not that I know everything about wine and whatever. I mean, I've done my diploma, I've worked in wineries, I've whatever, but I think that's what I bring to it. I think you're so right because there's so much to... There's so many different expressions of how you can enjoy wine as well, right? Like you just said, those 21-year-olds might not have wanted to go to a wine tasting if it wasn't for Kanye West. I've never actually done this specifically myself, but I have always thought about doing this. And anyone listening, by all means, play around with it. This, this is brilliant, which is that, again, the perception of your wine can be different based on the music that you play or something as simple as that. So apparently like if you play something that is a higher pitch, if it is much faster, the wine is going to taste more vibrant and fresh. And then depending on different rhythms, I've heard that too. right? And so you can take the same wine and you can actually take a lot cheaper wine and based on certain music that you play you can make the wine the cheaper wine taste better which is a whole fascinating subject so taking other arts and mixing it with wine I think is a whole other level a whole I could do a whole podcast perhaps with somebody who has brought different arts into wine to see how the perception and the enjoyment of it changes right yes you're doing your own wine course 
right now, I think, aren't you? Are you doing a wine course? I have like two courses. One is just a three minute wine course, which I did with the Wine Spirit Education Trust. And I actually filmed in California and I teamed up with Som TV. So they were the producers behind the amazing award-winning Som TV series, but they had their own kind of wine club, which you sign up to and you have all this incredible media content around wine and food. So that's just a three minute wine course with the WSET. But then I wrote my own wine course, which was filmed at London Crew Urban Winery, actually with the winemaker cool. Alex Hurley. Love this. Yes, yeah. exactly. It's in London, everybody. It's so easy to get to. They do tours. Their wines are great. I love their, the Bacchus is named, I can't remember what they name it after. One of the, it's got a cool name, hasn't it? Something. Yeah. Anyway, their Bacchus, it's got a picture of the London River. It's a good Bacchus. Anyway. So, okay, carry on. So yeah, I did it in conjunction with Learning with Experts, which is basically like the UK version of Masterclass. Okay. And so they wanted me to kind of write four masterclasses, each an hour's length, to kind of just give people a little bit of an introduction. So, I mean, I kind of have like four classes, like the first one is how to taste. The second one is grapes and styles, where I actually have Alex Hurley kind of in the winery with me. And we're kind of doing like, this is an old wine, but then this is like the new world wine, like counterpart and how that changes. Oh, actually, sorry, grapes and styles, we go through. That's different. That's again, just with like seven or eight of the main kind of styles. And then world of wine is when we actually do old wines and then their counterparts and what you can find in the new world. And then for the last masterclass, which is like how to have more fun with your food, I actually go to Leith's cookery school. Ooh, I used to do a lot like of food and wine masterclasses at Leith's. And I team up with the chef there, Dan Cameron, and I kind of go through kind of the main principles of wine and food pairing. And everybody, good acidity cuts through protein, fat, butter, oil. So in the episode before, Austrian wine, perfect. Yep. English wine, perfect. <laughs> also, whatever goes together, goes together. That will get you 90% of the way there. So if you're ever stuck on like what wine to order or what food to have with wine, just think about what would the local people eat with from where that wine came from. Maybe England, there's like less of an association, but like... Fish and chips and Bacchus. That's true. That is very, very true. And I mean, again, if you want to get a Rioja, Rioja goes really nicely with the lamb around there. If you get a Muscadet from... Sancerre, the local goats, please, the chef. Yeah, that's amazing. The the Muscadet with the seafood, the fruits, fruits, fruits del mar, is that what they call it? The platter that's filled with fruit, with fruit. Yeah. The platter that's filled with fish, fruits del mar. With seafood. I got food poisoning from that recently, so I'm, I'm trying to. Oh, well. okay. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Moving on. Right. To sum up, I'm going to do a bit of a quick fire round just to finish off. Now, you, I'm sure, have tasted lots of wine from different wine glasses. Do you have a favorite wine glass that you would recommend people to drink from? I think Jancis Robinson's, like, one size fits all wine glass is amazing. Like, I don't. I love different kinds of wine glasses. Like I like 1930s coupes. I love, like my friends have given me some very ornate wine glasses, which I keep just because it reminds me of them. But I do a lot of events. I do a lot of tastings. And also when people come over for dinner, I serve a lot of different styles of wine. And I don't like to do lots of washing up, quite frankly. So I think <laughs> Jancis Robinson's like one size fits all is brilliant. I mean, I used to use a lot for my tastings, the Riedel restaurant yeah. range, because they're really great, staple, easy to clean. I think I used to get the Sangiovese size and that would actually work with white and red too, but they weren't really expensive and they look good. I have to say about the Jancis Robinson, many, many years ago, I did a reel 
playing around with the Genesis Robertson glass and actually flicking the glass so that it would bet that so you could see that the stem would bend and it would come back and it was no stir- yeah 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 play literally take your glass and 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 like cling it ding pull it and it will just bounce back and i have to give her massive credit because that's where you realize that it has a real sturdiness so i'm going to give right 10 out of 10 for that well done okay i agree favorite wine book <gasps> well actually i was like i thought i had it in here oh she's going away it's really difficult to tell Sorry, I'm trying to find, because it might be upstairs. <laughs> One of the first wine books I got was the, the wine book about grape varieties with Margaret Rand and Oz Clark. Like that was like, which was published years ago. Okay. But then I love the descriptions of the grapes. It was so accessible, whatever. Yeah. I was just going to say, I can't remember the name of the wine, the, sorry, the wine book, but my brother bought me this wine book by Oz Clark. And this is going back 12 to 15 years ago. And it was just really colorful. It did everything. Yeah, it so colorful, really fun. Yeah, there were like yeah. sexual innuendos. <laughs> oh, that's, I like that. Well, because like Oz was like writing as well as Margaret ran. Like, like, you know, she can't control him the whole time. I would say <laughs> the equivalent uh, in America, which I really loved in terms of its accessibility, was The Wine Bible by Karen McNeil. Like, and I always like say that to Ooh, my American lot. friends. I think that's great. Yep. And then in terms of my journey now as like a wine culturalist and like the wider conversations around wine, I really enjoyed Paul Lukacs. He's Hungarian, so it's spelled L-U-K-A-C-S. And he has written this whole book on the history of wine, which is called Inventing Wine. And Ooh, okay. it's really, really interesting, like looking at wine from ancient Egyptians through to like market trends. Unfortunately, he died about seven years ago. He sounded absolutely fascinating. He was an English professor, Hungarian descent, but taught English in top university in the US, but then also contributed to wine columns and was really well respected in the wine circle. Interesting. I've never read it. Okay. That's a, that's what I'm going to look into now. Okay. Just because you're very creative, I have to ask you if you were a wine, everyone wants to know what wine would you be? I would be a white Chateau Neuf de Pap. Because Ooh. I just think, like, I, I think like, a blend, you know, I kind of like, I think I've got better with age. <laughs> I think I'm multifaceted. Some people could say many personalities. I prefer the term complex and multifaceted. So I love the idea that there's like loads of different grapes uh-huh. which can be shoved in there. And I think it's a white. So it's got like the freedomness, but then it's got the structure of a red. So it can't be put in a box. I hate being put in a box. <laughs> and yeah, I just, I just think it's a really sexy cool wine and it's a really fun one to play on people who think they know a lot about wine and you pull like the white chat enough to pap card i i really like that good description see this i do you know what i might start asking this question on more episodes i don't ask that but it's it's intriguing to see what wine people think they would be okay this is this is very lots of sunshine too sorry from the room oh Okay, fine. Yeah, exactly. The The Southern Rhone. Yeah, yeah, precisely. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now this is super serious because, you know, we wouldn't want this to be a serious podcast, which is if you could create a new wine themed emoji, (laughs) what emoji would it be? What is the emoji that you will campaign for? Well, I still want that to be a white wine one, quite frankly. Well, yeah. (laughs) It is actually really annoying, isn't it? Isn't it really annoying? I I really want that because like, I love, yeah, like that is like really frustrating. So I'd probably say that. I know it's not very original, but like it still hasn't been done. Wasn't there a campaign a long time ago? It's not 
Yeah, and I think like, even yeah. in New okay. Zealand, the winemakers actually did a campaign. It's like, frig, Savvy B needs an emoji. But yeah. <laughs> well, I guess on that note, you know, I mean, I know that there are worse things in the world that we need to campaign on, but hashtag white wine glass emoji, hashtag pink wine glass emoji. It is difficult to express. I sometimes on my Instagram reels and I'm talking about a white wine and I use the red wine emoji. I just wonder if sometimes people think I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, I definitely don't think that. I think, yeah, people can relate to the pain. Yeah. Okay, good. Okay. If you guys can relate to the pain, let us know. We want to know what you're feeling. Can we start the hashtag different color wine glass emoji revolution? Let us know if we can get enough people on board. Maybe we can change the world. One wine glass emoji at a time. At a time. I like that. Amelia, let's work on this. Let's talk about this off air. (laughs) Okay, my white Chasseneuf de Pap friend, I shall let you continue drinking your last little bit of Grunewaldliner from the last episode. And we shall shall talk again about our new, new fight against the the wine world and social media. Absolutely. Always up for that. I'll speak to you Thank soon. Thank you so much. This has been such a joy. This is wine. This is wine. And speak to you very soon. Bye. Bye. So I would love to hear from you guys. <laughs> what emoji do we need on Instagram that will change the wine world? Super, super serious question. <laughs> My email is yanina at eatsleepwinerepeat.co.uk and yanina is spelt with a J or go to my Instagram and send me a direct message. If you're not following me, go to at eatsleep underscore wine repeat. And as always, let's finish off with a wine quote. And today I have one from Matt Kramer, who is an American wine critic. And he said, wine is the meeting point between culture and nature. And it is so true. I mean, wine is intertwined with the culture, the history, the human experience. And so if you are looking for a delicious bottle of wine, you already know that I have the wonderful support of Wickham's Wine as my sponsor this season. And I realized I can't keep mentioning them without giving you guys a discount code. So I asked them very nicely. And if you use the code EATSLEEP10, you'll be able to get 10% off of your first order. But I shall leave that information in the show notes. So perhaps you can try the Gruner Veltliner that I tasted on the episode before. And going kind of off piece here, but I tasted ages ago a bottle of Gaffa Alberino Reserva from Vino Verde, which is in the north of Portugal. So this is what borders onto Rias Baixas. I did an episode on Rias Baixas just a few episodes ago. So this is the same grape variety, but obviously growing on the Portuguese border. My God, like if you buy a mix six, I know that's £12.50. And I wrote down, I'm reading my own tasting notes from this wine, beautiful essence of pear and subtle spice with this texture and freshness and fleshiness. It's 
delicious. And I've been meaning to talk about that wine for months and haven't. So maybe go and check that one out. Right. Next week, I am talking with wine writer Henry Jeffries, who has just released a book called Vines in a Cool Climate. This is a book looking at the very important instrumental people behind the English wine movement. And oh my God, his insights are fascinating. So you're going to love the next two episodes coming up. Now, as always, to sum up this episode, if you are getting value out of this podcast, please scream and shout from the rooftops, share with your wine loving friends. And if you have a moment, do leave me a rating or a review on your podcast app that you are listening on. Now, let us drink to nothing in particular. Be happy, have a beautiful week, and I'll see you back again here next week. Cheers to you.